So I will read out Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 to 9. Deuteronomy 20, 1 to 9. This is God's word. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for battle against your enemies. Let not your heart faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Then the officers shall speak to the people saying, Is there any man who has built a new house and has not dedicated it? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man dedicate it. And is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man enjoy its fruit. And is there any man who has betrothed a wife and has not taken her? Let him go back to his house, lest he die in the battle and another man take her. And the officers shall speak further to the people and say, Is there any man who is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go back to his house, lest he make the heart of his fellows melt like his own. And when the officers have finished speaking to the people, then commanders shall be appointed at the head of the people. This is God's word. War is a absolutely horrible, horrible thing. And we here in Australia are relatively sheltered from the realities of war. But obviously over the last several weeks, um, the topic of war, the theme of war has been much more prominent. And we have seen not quite firsthand because we're still quite removed, though we have been drawn perhaps a lot closer to the realities of war, seeing visions of a maternity hospital in Ukraine blown up and pregnant women bloodied and trying to find a place to just give birth to their child. And you just realize just the horrible, horrible atrocities of war. Families separated from each other, families trying to flee for refuge, men being taken off a train to stay back and fight probably to the death and mums and children's children, you know, never really being able to grow up therefore with with their father there there are a lot of uh just horrible horrible things to war and by god's providence we are naturally up to a passage that talks about war in the book of deuteronomy uh, war is somewhat of a, a common theme though if you really look at it percentage wise if you were to study the bible the topic of war would really be something very minimal probably less than one percent of the pages of the Bible would actually talk about war. And yet in this time, we are preaching through a passage that talks about war. And it's something that we need to address. So this type of war here that we see in Deuteronomy 20 is a type of war that is known as holy war. There is a, a type of war that most people refer to as holy war. And holy war is the term used for warfare, which God, specifically prescribes he commands his people to go off to war and in this particular context it is where the people his people israel have been brought out of egypt so remember they were uh, 
for hundreds of years in slavery in Egypt and God delivers them from harsh slavery and they are led through the wilderness and they're still in the wilderness now, but God is leading them toward this promised land and the way in which they will take the promised land is by actually engaging in warfare to drive out the people of that land. So this passage is God giving specific instructions for how they are to take the land by holy war. And holy war in the scheme of history is exceptionally rare and we only ever really hear about it in the Old Testament. Holy war is only a theme that happens under the Old Covenant, which is the the covenant that God had with his people Israel over 2,000 years ago. And holy war happened because under the Old Covenant, and this is something important to understand, God was acting physically through his people Israel. So they were actually a geopolitical nation. His people were actually a physical nation. So they had physical things that reflected God's presence, like a physical temple. Or for a while, something probably not quite as luxurious as this, but a big tabernacle over them where they actually met. And it was this physical thing that showed, ah, God's presence is here among us. So they also had other ways in which they were supposed to live under the old covenant where God was acting in a particular way. And one of those was to go to war because Israel was God's representative. He was physically acting as a political people. And so they were to engage in warfare. But what we will touch on a bit later is that there is this transition that happens under the new covenant. The new covenant is what Jesus brings over 2000 years ago when the passage we read out in Isaiah, God would send his son to bring a new covenant. A covenant is an agreement between two parties. And it's like God saying, I agree to love you and to provide a sacrifice for you and to bring you into my family. That is the new covenant that Jesus brings. And when we go from the old covenant to the new covenant, there is this transition from physical to spiritual. So the temple is no longer this physical temple, but we are the temple. There's a spiritual temple. Likewise, you don't ever hear anything about physical warfare in the New Testament. The language changes from physical warfare to spiritual warfare. So Jesus comes along and he says, my kingdom is not of this world and all those who take up the sword will die by the sword. And Paul says, we do not wage war according to the flesh, but our warfare is a spiritual warfare. So the language changes. So we have a spiritual warfare today, which means there is really no place in this time, nor has there been for the last 2000 years for Christians to take up arms in the name of God and to slaughter people physically trying to sort of conquer and engage in holy war because there has been a transition that has happened. And I think the New Testament is just uber clear about that. But as we study this passage that comes under the old covenant, there is this place of holy war. So before we look at God's purpose behind war, what I want to look at today is actually looking at why. Why would God prescribe warfare? Is he some bloodthirsty warlord that just wants to conquer? Why would he actually prescribe warfare? Before we look at the purpose behind it, I need to give three qualifiers before we actually look at this um, passage today and God's purpose behind warfare. Uh, Three qualifiers on warfare. The first 
is that God has sole rights over everything and everyone in this world. God has sole rights. He is creator. He has sole rights over everything and everyone in this world. This is the simple truth that our world fails to grasp because we love to elevate ourselves and we love to bring God down. So it's very difficult to grasp the fact, the true reality that God has sole rights over everything and everyone in the world. He has supreme rights over his creation. So like Job, another book of the Old Testament, when he lost everything, he said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. He's saying, hey, I didn't deserve any of this anyway. The Lord gave it to me. If he wants to take it away, that's his prerogative. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Or Paul in Romans 9, when he's talking about God's sovereign election, a, a very uh, complex and sometimes difficult um, teaching for people to understand. And he's basically saying that God has you know, a, uh, a, a sovereign election. Uh, some people he uh, will choose, others he will pass over. And he gives this rhetorical question where he says, he almost preempts what someone would ask. And he says, does that make God unjust if he is sovereign over election and yet still holds humans responsible? Does that make God unjust? And Paul's answer is quite unsatisfactory to a lot of people. He says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Who are you to answer back to God? Does the clay jar turn back to the potter and say, why have you made me like this? He's saying God is sovereign over creation. The simple truth is that God has sole rights over everything in creation. Every breath that we breathe is by God's mercy and we're not actually entitled to it. So God has supreme rights to wage war through his people. The second qualifier is that holy war, as we see in this passage, is often a vessel for God to actually judge wickedness. It's often a vessel for God to actually judge wicked people who are doing terrible things. So we often think of war as this you know, picture of, like we see now, the footage in Ukraine, of horrible wars where um, helpless people are just displaced and uh, slaughtered even. And it's a terrible thing, but holy war in the Old Testament was never that kind of picture. It was never to just slaughter innocent, helpless people. When God calls his people to warfare, it's often to judge wicked people. And in this exact context, if we were to turn back a few chapters in Deuteronomy chapter 9, God actually says to his people, I'm not driving you into this land. I'm not giving you this land because you are a special people, because of anything you've done. No, it's because of the wickedness of these people that I'm driving them out. So it actually says, don't, don't um, think that it's because you're special in and of yourselves. It's because these people are wicked and I want to drive them out. So we read elsewhere that the people that were in the promised land, some of the nations had practices of actually literally burning babies in fire, taking newborn babies and rolling them down toward this God and they would be burned to death as a sacrifice to their God. And God is saying, don't, don't you ever do anything like that. That's abominable to me. So he's actually driving out wicked peoples in the land. The, the bigger question that we should ask is not, why does God judge these people like that? Why does God judge wickedness? The question we should be asking is, why doesn't God judge everyone? We're all wicked. That's the question we should be asking, not 
why doesn't God uh, save everyone, but rather, why does God save anyone? We've all rejected, we've all turned away from him. And this leads us to the third qualifier. Sin has so corrupted the world that war becomes inevitable. A common objection when people are faced with the reality of what God instructs here for warfare is the question is, how could a loving God do this? Isn't God a God of peace? How could a loving God actually call people to engage in warfare? And this ignores a glaring and fundamental fact about the world, that the world is broken by sin. The world is broken. And war actually points to that. War shouldn't be happening. It points to the fact that the world is broken. There's something wrong. There is this thing called the fall where sin entered the world and it just infects us. It's like a disease that infects our hearts. And so it, it, it infects humanity. So the world is broken because we are all sinful. Evil is very present in this world. See, some people might say, and I've heard this going around now, that, well, if we just choose peace over war, then we'll all be okay. And in one sense, like I wholeheartedly affirm that, I would always like to choose peace over war. War is horrible. But that only works if everyone is willing to subscribe to the same grounds of peace as everyone else. And we know that because of the sin in the hearts of men, then not everyone is going to do that. See, we want, our culture wants peace and freedom. We value these. We want peace and freedom. But to have peace, we have to have some form of restraint toward those who threaten that peace. And we have to actually have people who are going to enforce that restraint and potentially imprison, in a sense, people who are going to threaten that peace. So how can you have peace and freedom if you're going to restrain people? It's not exactly free, is it? You have to have some sense of enforcement to actually restrain that which threatens the peace. And so someone might say, oh, well, we only just, we're only going to restrain what's bad. We'll just keep doing that and eventually we'll end up with what is good. But what is good? How do we determine what is bad and what is good? Who gets to determine that? Some people might think the right way to end the war in Ukraine is just to basically get all of the NATO forces, all of the Western allies to basically just destroy Russia and then we'll eventually get peace. Other people might say, no, that's not right. We should just kind of try and crush them economically. Meanwhile, Russians are killing Ukrainians. Ukrainians are killing Russians. There's more and more deaths happening. What's right and what's wrong? Even if we think about COVID, a lot of people have had a lot of opinions on what's right and what's wrong in COVID. Is it right to shut uh, everything down, close off borders from each other for the sake of the health of people. Is that a lot of people would say that's the right thing to do for the sake of the health of people, to just shut everyone off so that we South Australians who moved to ACT couldn't get back to South Australia, and, uh, but everyone stays healthy. And some people might say, yes, that's the right way to go about it. Other people would say, well, but hang on, that's the wrong way because What's happening there is then people are dying and in their last moments of death, they're shut off from their families. You deprive them of all dignity. They, their families aren't able to come to see them as they're dying or even attend their funeral. That doesn't seem right. Who gets to determine what is right 
and what is wrong. And the point is we can't. We can't subjectively determine what is right and what is wrong. There'll be a plethora of different thoughts and opinions. God alone can determine what is right and what is wrong. Sin has so corrupted us that we simply can't. And so therefore we look to God. We look to God alone as the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. And therefore that brings us all the way back to trusting in him that when he wages warfare, when he calls his people to do it, it is right and it is just because he is creator. We can't subjectively know what is right and what is wrong. We must turn to someone outside of ourselves to actually tell us what is right and what is wrong. And this brings us back to the God of heaven and earth and the God of the Bible that explains this. So these are the three qualifiers I wanted to give. God has soul rights over everything and everyone. Holy war is often a vessel for actually punishing wickedness. And sin has corrupted the world so that war becomes inevitable. We long for the day where sin will be done away with and there will be no war. Now, with that said, let's look back at our passage here in Deuteronomy 20 verses 1 to 8. And I've got three principles that we see here that actually reveal God's purpose behind warfare. So the first is that God is about displaying his glory through a weak and small people. God loves displaying his magnificence and his glory through a weak and small people. People. This is in verse 1. Look at what it says here. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. So look at what he's saying here. He's saying that you will go off to war and you're going to see horses and chariots. Now, keep in mind, Israel at this time didn't have any horses and chariots. They were just foot soldiers. And to come across an army that had horses and chariots, though like horses and chariots can't do too much really, but it would seem like a confronting thing. I mean, they would be a lot quicker. It would seem very confronting to come across an army that all of a sudden had superior technology, so to speak. Not only that, but God specifically says they're going to be bigger than you. And God, since he is sovereign, that is, he's in control, is going to sovereignly lead his people into a situation where they are faced with an army that is more advanced than them and that is bigger than them. And he chooses to lead his people into that position, into a place that seems impossible so that he can display his glory through them. And the classic example of this is Gideon's army, if you remember in Judges, another book of the Old Testament, where uh, there's this man Gideon and God is choosing him to lead his people off to war. And he has like 10,000 soldiers and God just keeps saying, hey, you've got too many. You've got too many soldiers. You will think that you've done it. So I want you to cut it down to about 300 people, this tiny little army going up against tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of soldiers. And God specifically leads them into something that seems impossible so that he will then lead them to victory and they will be able to say, God alone did this. God alone has done this. And in Deuteronomy 20, what we see here in this passage is that God is in no way interested in having masses of people. I mean, just read this. Read what he says here from verses uh, 5 and 7. He's 
basically saying, you know, like it's almost like God is going out of his way to, to send people away. Like, hey, has anyone just bought a new house? Go and enjoy it. Have a housewarming party. Has anyone just done some gardening? You've planted a vineyard. Go and make sure you have fruit. Is anyone scared? Don't worry. We don't need you. Go off. Go home. Have a good time. He's almost going out of his way to send people away. And this is all to do with God wanting his people to see that he is totally able to win the battle when the odds seem so unlikely. And because God is a relational God, because he actually wants to know us, he wants to use us, he still uses people, yet he does it in a way that makes it clear that he alone is doing it. He has the perfect balance between showing that he's very interested in using us, broken you and me type people, yet in a way that shows his surpassing glory. And so we can take this principle for our own lives that God will always thrust us into situations where it seems so unlikely that we will come through, where it seems so unlikely that we will actually survive and he thrusts us into these things so that his glory would be seen so that we could say like Paul, we're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not driven to despair. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. The second principle we see here is that God, God's, God delights in his people, not in warfare. We shouldn't have this picture here of God delighting in warfare. God is very clear to say, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. I do not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God delights in his people, not specifically in warfare. So we see this in verses 5 to 7 again. God instructs these people who have not yet had a chance to enjoy the fruit of the promised land. Remember that the promised land that God leads them into is this place that he says is flowing with milk and honey. It's a vibrant, prosperous land and God wants them to go and enjoy it. So that's why he's saying to people, hey, if you've just bought a house or if you've got this garden, this vineyard, go and enjoy it. Don't, don't feel like you have to come off to war. Because the purpose of the promised land is to be in this place where they can enjoy all of the good gifts that God has given them. That's the purpose. So God is not specifically about warfare. This is clear in this passage and in others. Like I said, in Ezekiel 18, it says, God, you know, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. So turn and repent. And here we see that God's concern is not primarily with, primarily with warfare. So war is not the end. It is a means to an end for God. It is a means to get his people into the promised land and for him to judge the wickedness and bring them in. But it's not the end. The end is for them to get to this place where they are enjoying God's presence in the promised land. That's the goal. And he is about bringing glory to his name by providing for people who will then go into this promised land and enjoy his presence. And isn't this awfully similar to the principle we saw weeks back in Deuteronomy 14, where God tells the people to bring this tithe, that is a tenth of their resources. He tells them to bring a tenth of their resources as an offering to him and go to this place where he's going to choose to make his name dwell. And then they are to engage in this feast. They're to enjoy this feast. They're to buy whatever they want. 
So it's like it has no pragmatic purpose to them. It's not like he says, go and get a tenth and then sell it um, or give it to the poor. He actually says, just enjoy the feast in my presence because that's the purpose. That's the ultimate goal is to be so enraptured with this God who has provided for you. And likewise, God here is not interested in bringing destruction. He's not interested specifically in warfare or creating this physical army. He's interested in his people coming to a place where they will enjoy his goodness in the land. That's the point. And the third last point here is God does not need anyone to fight for him. That is super clear. God does not need anyone to fight for him. The way God instructs the people here is just conveying this idea that God is self-sufficient. He does not need the people to fight for him. He is able at any moment to strike down anyone. We remember God at one point in two kings, he uh, gets fed up with the Assyrian army and he just chooses to send his angel and strike down 185,000 in one night. The soldiers of Israel just wake up and they're like, well, they're all gone. They're all dead. God just chose to, to strike them down. He is able to do that. And the modern church likes to paint this picture of a weak God who just kind of wants people to get along. It's not like he's a heavenly father. It's like he's this um, passive grandfather that just wants people to kind of get along. And well, if everyone's having a good time, then that's okay. And that's sort of this idea that the modern church or this world has conditioned us to think. But it is a lie. May we never buy into that lie. God is able at any moment to destroy wickedness. And we see in this passage that he's not actually crying out for fighters. He's totally able to accomplish this. He's self-sufficient. So the principle for us to always remember is one of the most liberating things. God does not need you. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need any of us. That displays even more of his love because he doesn't need us, yet he desires to work with us out of an overflow of his love, but he doesn't need us in any way. That is a wonderful, liberating truth because if he needed me, that would be a pressure, that would be a burden that I could never carry. But he doesn't need us. The all-sufficient God will make his name great and will conquer everything because he is totally able to in and of himself. Now, just as I transition to, to, to finishing, something does need to be said about how we are to understand this idea of holy war now as people you know, 3,000 years later who are not going off to war. Like I said earlier, there are no commands to physical warfare in the New Testament. We have Jesus who comes along and in his Sermon on the Mount, he specifically talks about loving our enemies. He says, you will be a people who will turn the other cheek. If you get slapped on one cheek, you give them the other. You don't retaliate. We have that example in 1 Peter. who Peter actually says, to this you have been called. And he gives the example of Jesus. And he says, when he was reviled and mocked, he didn't turn back and revile and mock. When he was slapped and beaten and mocked, he just entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus didn't retaliate. Remember in the garden, when Jesus was about to be taken by the army and Peter brings out his sword, 
And Jesus says, put back your sword. All those who take up the sword will die by the sword. And Jesus says, hey, at any moment, if I wanted to, I could have 12 legions of angels to come and kill everyone. But that's not what I've come here to do. I've come here to be the sacrifice for you. I've come down here to lay down our life. And we are called to follow that same pattern. We are called to not to physical warfare, but to a spiritual warfare. There is this spiritual warfare that the New Testament talks about, the kind in Ephesians 6 that talks about the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, and the sword of the Spirit. We remember the kind of warfare that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, where he says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Isn't that amazing? Just like dwell on that for a moment. With all of this talk of war and we're seeing physical war, we here in Australia can get lured. We as followers of Jesus can get lured into this place where we think that all is well. There's no bombs going off around us, but the reality is there is this spiritual war that is going on all the time. There is this constant cosmic battle. And listen to the way Paul talks about it. He says, our weapons have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. This is our warfare. A part of our warfare is not giving in to this apathetic culture that allows us to just be on the fringe as a follower of Jesus. That's our warfare, to fight against that, to destroy these lofty opinions, these lofty thoughts to say, you know what, it's a bit too radical the way you're following Jesus now. Don't be, don't be too serious about it. These are the things we actually need to destroy or destroy the, the lofty opinion that says, you know what, you should be about your career. You should be about making money. Don't give your life up. Don't, don't think, don't be too sacrificial. That's the lofty opinion that we actually need to destroy. We take down. So this is our warfare. And in this spiritual battle where we are to take up our cross every day, we remember the same principles. I want to, in just the last few minutes, show how our spiritual warfare follows the same principles that we see here in God actually speaking to his people Israel in their physical warfare. So the first principle is that God is about displaying his glory through a weak and small people. God will be glorified in you as you persevere as a soldier of Christ through depression, through joylessness, through sickness, through cancer, through being on your deathbed. God will be glorified in you. God will not be glorified in you living this life of an Instagram culture of the latest fashion vacations every time a thriving career. And the reason why God won't be glorified in you is because everyone else in the world wants that and it doesn't point to Jesus. But to have someone who superficially doesn't appear to have a whole lot going for them and yet they have this hope, this utter trust in Jesus as their Lord, that He is their satisfaction. And so they wake up every morning loving the Lord, pursuing Him, 
not with a perfect life. That's never what Christianity is about. It's not about perfection, but it's about direction, direction to this Savior, finding satisfaction in Him. And that glorifies God through you and me as weak jars of clay that are fighting for satisfaction in Him, that are fighting for Jesus. And we don't fight with this physical warfare. We don't actually glorify God by having this life that looks all together. We, f- we follow it through gritty discipline that wants to pursue Christ. Secondly, God delights in people and not in warfare. What's the principle for us then for this? God delights in people, not in warfare. The principle for us to take in this is that what God most desires in us is that we most desire him and so our warfare this is something that i i talk about a lot because i feel it's so important for us our warfare in this cultural moment is a fight for joy and satisfaction in christ that's our warfare to actually fight for joy and satisfaction in him is it possible to have a life of joy and satisfaction solely in christ not saying it's in christ but that's because you have like half a million dollars in the bank and you get to travel around the world. Is, there, is it possible to actually have joy and satisfaction in Christ? And this is the battleground all around us. There is this world that we live in that makes us want to find joy and satisfaction in all of these things that are not pointing to Christ. Things like our careers, The danger is that we only ever feel satisfied when we have a thriving career. That's the danger. Careers aren't bad. May we all work and we're told to actually work. But finding your satisfaction solely in your career is dangerous. Social life. If you're only satisfied when you feel like you have a plethora of friends and a lot of events to go to, then that is where your satisfaction is rather than in Christ. For me, like my danger is just confessing and being open before you is something that I absolutely love, which is learning about the Bible. And my danger is that I'm only ever satisfied when I'm that guy that people can turn to and say, oh, Tom will know the answer to that. And I'm there and people are talking about a theological question and I'm just waiting for people to come and I'm sitting there calmly, but really inside I'm eager to, sh- to show that I know the answer. And eventually someone will say, oh, Tom, what's the answer? And I can say, well, in the Greek text, it turns back to this and I can kind of give the answer to that and, and, you know, really assert my dominance there. But that's not where my satisfaction should be. My satisfaction should be totally in Christ so that I can be in that environment and even have people think I'm wrong and totally stupid when it comes to the Bible. But hey, I don't care. Jesus loves me. I'm satisfied in him. That's the battleground for us. We need to fight against these things. And one of the prayers that I try and pray a lot, which is a very practical way for us to pray for this fight, is to pray like Moses said in Psalm 90, satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our lives. So so I'm not looking for satisfaction in a European holiday or satisfaction in a new product. Satisfy us in your steadfast love, Lord, that we may rejoice and be glad all the days of our lives. Amen. So we wage warfare this way. Lastly, 
God does not need anyone to fight for him. What's, what's the principle here for us? God's self-sufficiency. We should think about this principle in terms of our warfare, which every follower of Jesus has, the warfare of proclaiming the gospel, telling the gospel, proclaiming a magnificent God. This is fundamental to our warfare as followers of Jesus. We wage war by proclaiming the truth of Christ to a world that often prefers a lie. A world that often prefers a lion. We have to remember to preach him as he rightly reveals himself to us, which is as an all-sufficient God, a God who is totally sufficient, who is utterly worthy of every ounce of our devotion because of who he is. Not as a weak God who is just begging for people to come to him and just get along and then he'll be okay. So we don't water down the message or take away God's burning holiness by trying to convey some message that we are somehow worthy of God's attention. That's the danger of a lot of the messages that come out from Christian preachers or really the world, where it's sort of this message of like a lot of truths, but the problem is they're blended in this cultural narrative of selfishness. So messages like, well, hey, God loves you. You're just an amazing person. And, and if you come, like, you're going to do great things. You're going to be a game changer. For, you're going to do great things for the kingdom of God. God just loves you so much. And it's, it's somewhat true things. But the problem is it simply feeds into this already existing narrative in our society where we're told that we are special just because of who we are. And the problem is the Bible says something different, that actually we're not. Yes, we are all made in the image of God and there is a certain special uh, aspect of us being made in the image of God. But the problem is we have this thing called sin that corrupts us. And so we don't look into ourselves as special people. We look to Christ, our Savior, as the special one. A.W. Tozer, old guy from the 1940s, 1950s, he says, speaking of you know, a time 70 years ago, so how much more now? Too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied frustration of Almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity in his hearers, not only for the heathen, but for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and has failed for want of support. I fear that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from the embarrassing situation his love has got him into and his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. God needs no defenders. Do you see the, the picture of that? A lot of Christian activity can sort of be trying to appeal to people's emotions to sort of urge them in and it paints this picture of a God that's sort of helpless. His love has got him into some awkward position where he sent his son, but people have rejected him. And so we're just sort of begging, begging for people to come in. But that's not the message of the Bible. God is actually self-sufficient. So as we proclaim it, yes, we proclaim his love. And yes, we proclaim a God that has his arms wide open. But we proclaim his, him as a magnificent, self-sufficient savior who is totally worthy of every ounce of our devotion and worship. The God we proclaim is one who is supreme over everything and everyone and who delights in showing his people that he is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine because he is God with or without us. We might finish by 
singing our song and then we'll take the Lord's Supper after. So I feel like it would be a great, great song to sing. So I might just invite you up now, Andrew, and I'll, I'll um, just close us now. I want us to, to finish by singing this song, Church Arise, but I want to um, just finish by saying before we take the Lord's Supper, uh, this is a message really to, to take up our cross. And the way as followers of Jesus, we take up our crosses by every day in helplessness, turning to Christ. And we, of course, do that because there is a call upon us once and for all to turn to Jesus, to turn to him. And so we've, we've kind of spoken today about this all-sufficient God, this God who engages in warfare, who actually calls people to turn to him. And so you may be here, you may have actually come many times before and, and you are realizing now, whether for the first time or for a time where you really need to reorient yourself, there is a call to actually turn to this God who is self-sufficient, who is totally sufficient and totally worthy of your praise rather than a God who is helplessly just inviting you in because he needs people. God doesn't need anyone, but the wonderful truth of that is the fact that God doesn't need anyone displays his love even more because he wants to have us in for our good, actually, for our whole purpose, which is to know this God. It's a wonderful truth that he doesn't need us, yet he's still shows his love for us in sending his son to be the substitute. And so all we do to receive life is turn to Jesus. We receive forgiveness of our sins and we experience this wonderful, wonderful life of just following Jesus and being satisfied in him as opposed to the world. So let's uh, sing now with just that wonderful truth in our hearts that our God is all satisfying because he is all sufficient. He's completely able to do all things. And so he is completely able to satisfy our hearts. He's completely able to make us joyful in him.